Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to another episode of the Ahmed Khan podcast. Today we are here joined by Dr. Shu'aib Ahmed Malik, who is the author of the latest book, Islam and Evolution. Um, and it's an analysis of the topic by using the creed of Imam al Ghazali. And it's been a critically acclaimed book. And inshallah, it will be our reference for today's discussion on the topic of Islam and evolution and how these two can be reconciled. So thank you for joining us, bro. Oh, alhamdulillah. Thank you very much for inviting me, uh, Ahmed. It's, it's a real honor. And I'm so glad that you managed to read the book. And we can hopefully have a fantastic conversation here on, inshallah. Inshallah. Um, the book is excellent. Um, I mean, in the, you know, you can just briefly talk about your book and the reasons behind uh, creating it. Right. So, um, it, first of all, I mean, if you if you want to get a hard copy, you can buy it off Amazon. If you want to download for free, it's available as a PDF. Um, but the book is it, there, there's no paywall, so if you if you have you know tight budgets, this is definitely something that you can easily uh, get access to. Now, the reason for writing this book was very simple. Um, in the my personal interest uh, in terms of my academic research is in Islam and science and also Islamic theology. And I wanted to kind of see what are some of the big questions in the field of Islam and science. And there are many, you know, there are like quantum mechanics, there's, you know, does God exist? Does the science disprove God, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the one that really hits home when it comes to uh, the polarity involved, the controversial nature involved is without a doubt evolution. So I, I, you know, I dived right in and I wanted to see what people were saying. And I just found out that people were, you know, being very unfair or simplistic on either side. So some people make the science so simplistic and caricaturish, they just dismiss the science off the bat. And vice versa, some people take the Quran and uh, Hadith very, um, you know, lackadaisically. And I feel that that's a very, very dishonoring way of looking at scripture or even generally Islamic tradition. And I felt that it was very dismissive just generally of what we have to say from our, from our intellectual heritage. So trying to avoid this dismissive character, but also at the same time uh, maintaining uh, a, a critical eye on both sides, I wanted to write a book that provided a moderate analysis that one, made the conversation simple. So even if you don't know anything about Islam and evolution, I hope this book provides the first step to understanding what Islam and evolution is about. That's the first thing. And the second of all, providing a robust uh, methodology that can help you understand what we can accept as Sunni Muslims, because this is written from a Sunni paradigm, of course, and then what we cannot accept. And this is based on both the theological or the metaphysical principles and the hermeneutics involved, i.e. understanding scripture. So this is where I came from. This is why I decided to write this book. Yeah, and I think we, we have popular preachers who like to downplay the theory of evolution, such as it being a theory. Um, I remember when I first started at university, I was asked this question and I just used straight up Dr. Zakarnaik points of <laughs> it's just a theory. It hasn't been proven at all. Um, and uh, let's just say I didn't get far. You know, I love Dr. Zakarnaik for the thing he does. But um, and you mentioned this again in your book of that of tr tr the traditional standpoint is that there is a binary it's that mm -hmm. either you fall into one camp where you completely deny it or you fall into the other camp where you completely believe it. And both have implications. The first implication is that, you know, you're completely against all of the science that's out there. Whereas if you take the other stance, you're against, you know, our entire tradition. And it's almost mm -hmm. like a kufri position, like you're going outside of the fold of Islam. Um, so I, I, if, 
as somebody who read it, it took a bit, it took a bit of time, but in the English language, um, I, I think it's an unprecedented book. And many of our scholars have said that as well. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. I'm really glad. Yeah. I mean, so far I've had positive views about the, the material that's in there. Uh, of course, it just came out a couple of months ago. So I want the dust to settle. And then let's see what people have to say, how they think about the material in there. And I think it's, it's, it's a step towards, you know, a longer conversation, but I hope it opens many doors for people to really, you know, think about this very seriously, because it's not something that we can just shun away. I mean, let's face it, evolution is being taught in your schools, your high schools, your universities, uh, and many parents have even struggled with their kids turning to atheism because of evolution. I mean, I'm personally aware of two families in the midst right now who, who have, whose children have left because of evolution. Um, and this is just you know, one out of several growing concerns that we have in terms of intellectual doubts. So mm -hmm. evolution is something we need to take head on seriously without you know, reducing or simplifying either side of the conversation. And that's mm -hmm. what I try to do in this, in this project. All right, then let's get straight into it. Um, the beginning, um, when it comes to evolution, there's a lot of misconceptions of what the theory of evolution is. There is a misconception that there is one theory. Um, and uh, a lot of people uh, caricature the theory as well. Some people put it on a pedestal as if this is our creation story. Um, but do you mind giving a brief introduction of what the theory of evolution is from at least um, the perspective that you're writing in your book? Yeah, sure. So let me first start off with the word theory, just to make sure that is clear. So the word theory has both a colloquial understanding, like a layman understanding, and then you have a more specialized understanding, right? So in the lay understanding, when I say that's my theory, you'll say that's a guess. This is my guess right, on how I can explain X, Y, Z phenomenon. But when we're talking about theory in a scientific sense, theory in science means it has reached the highest level of experimentation, mm. rigorousness, peer review, etc. So theory just means that this is the highest level a scientific process methodology can achieve. So that's what we mean by theory. It is something that is absolutely resolute. It's up there, right? So if you want to really take this down, you need to provide high levels of evidence to kind of move scientists to think about the particular phenomenon in a different direction. So that's what we mean by theory. Now, when it comes to evolution, evolution is a very simple I mean, thing to understand. Of course, the deeper you go, the more complicated it gets. But in terms of getting the conversation started in the context of Islam, you just need to worry about three things. First principle of evolution is deep time. That just simply means that the earth is really, really old. Not 10,000 years, not 6,000 years. It's a billion years old, right? And so that's what we mean by deep time, that we just have a lot of time that has passed. And that time allows evolutionary processes to occur. So that's number one. Number two is known as common ancestry. So this is the simple idea that, so me and you, Ahmed, we have mothers and fathers, they have mothers and fathers, and they have mothers and fathers, and we keep going back and back and back. And slowly we can develop like a family tree network, right? That's why we call family trees and we hang them on our walls or whatever have you. Now, evolution just goes one step further. They, it, evolution says that every single biological entity is connected in this biolineal network that and what it entails is humans didn't just pop into existence. That's what it entails. There mm -hmm. must have been precursors to humans through which humans have been derived, right? So we came out of an earlier species that existed. And therefore, this is what causes the actual conflict in Islam and evolution. 
because in the scripture, we're, we, we, I mean, we've heard it since we were young. Adam was created miraculously. He was created miraculously. And, you know, they were, they, we all come from them, right? So mm. this is, this is a, a real point of conflict. So deep time has no issue in Islam because in Islam, there's nothing, you mm-hmm. know, solid about how old the earth is. But the second principle of evolution, common ancestry, is where friction starts to come about. So that's the second principle. So, so just third, very quickly, uh, yeah. so common ancestry basically entails, it's not necessarily the idea that we come from apes, but the idea, well, you, you want to address that? Because I know you talked yeah, about sure. in your book. So there's a very common misconception that we like come from apes. That's not what evolution theoretically says. Evolution simply says that us and apes, chimps, monkeys, we had a common ancestor. And that is why we have very similar physical traits as well as genetic traits. So it's not that we come from them, but they're more like we are related to them through a long history of, 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 of genetic similarity. And then, uh, so, so we're, they're like our cousins rather than our forefathers, if you see what I'm saying, okay. right? So that's a, that's a very famous misconception. That was a good point. So common ancestry is, is the real deal when it comes to the scriptural side of things. Now, the third principle of evolution are the mechanics. So, okay, evolution requires a lot of time, deep time. Evolution says that we are all connected, which is common ancestry. But how does evolution work? Like, what are the processes? What are the mechanics? Here, evolutionists have debates, right? And there are many camps now. There are many camps, right? The camp that is known as the evolutionary orthodoxy position is known as neo-Darwinism. And that's the position I take up in this book. I take Mm -hmm. it as a given, okay? So there are positions available, but they are still coming up to the level of neo-Darwinism and evolutionary biologists are having their respective debates about which mechanics are true or not. But I'm going to stick with neo-Darwinism just because it, it irks the most to Muslims. So I just wanted to show mm-hmm. Muslims that even <laughs> with these mechanics, how far you can go with them. And the mechanics have two parts in neo-Darwinism. One is called natural selection and the other one is called random mutation. So these are the two um, things that kind of make neo-Darwinism what it stands for. Natural selection is very simple. It just simply says, if you have a bunch of species and you put them in a given environment, the ones that are adapting or adaptive to that environment will most likely survive. So for, for instance, I live in UAE. The temperature here is 50 degrees, you know, traffic lights melt, cars blow up because of the heat. No, I'm joking, but mm-hmm. you get the point, right? It's very hot here, very, very hot. So if you take a bunch of species, some with very thick fur, some with very thin fur, and you situate them in the Middle East, right? The ones that have really thick fur, unless they start shedding it, they're going to fade out. They're not mm-hmm. going to live in that kind of environment because mm-hmm. they're just not suited to that environment. So what's happening here is nature or the natural environment is acting like a filter, a sieve of what can survive and what cannot. That's what we mean by natural selection, that nature simply selects. It filters out what can survive and what cannot survive. So that's the first part. And then the second part is very simple, random mutation. All of us have a basic biological unit called genes, DNA. That's what we're made out of, right? And it basically codifies the things that we see on this observable physical level. So both of us, me and you, Ahmed, we have a gene that codifies the hair to be black. Both of us have genes Mm -hmm. that codify us to have beards because we both have beards, right? So And so other people will have different genes or characters of genes that give them different respective properties. Now, over time, what happens is genes mutate, okay? They mutate positively, negatively, neutrally, whatever have you, but they mutate. So that is why we see sometimes differences from parents to kids, 
right? Parents mm-hmm. can, can give maybe shared properties and the kids. So sometimes there's no shared property and the kid looks totally different to the parents, but that is because of the genes involved. Now, because of this random aspect in the, in the gene passing over to offspring, if you multiply this accumulatively over billions of years, you begin to see speciation where different okay. species start evolving. And it is this combination of natural selection where the environment affects or influences what can and cannot survive. And then the genes embedded in the species that allows species to evolve, to adapt and live on and move on. These three principles, deep time, common ancestry, and the mechanics are natural selection, random mutation, is what I, is what is I, is what, is what I refer to as neo-Darwinism. And this mm. is the particular take of evolution that I engage with in my book. And to most people, the most problematic component, like you mentioned, is this common ancestry. This idea that all of us come from one species, that humans, that apes, that monkeys, chimpanzees, fish, you know, everything that exists all comes back from one source. And that entails the fundamental question we ask is, was Adam السلام, created, you know, as its own species or yeah. was it part of another species? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, this is so oh, hanging before we get to that, I actually forgot to relate what the problems mechanics raise the mechanics okay. of Dar- New Darwin. Okay. So I mentioned that a common ancestry is a scriptural issue because that conflicts with the creation narrative, Adam. All right. And then the mechanics of evolution, the natural selection, uh, people interpret that as naturalism, that natural selection means yeah. naturalism, that there is no God. It's just nature doing its own thing. So that's how people interpret that. The second um, uh, operational mechanic is random mutation. What does the word random mean here? Does, that, does that, this mean that God doesn't know what he's doing? So random is an agent that creates things? Or even if randomness is there and is created by God, does that mean we believe in some kind of astaghfirullah, you know, idiotic God or a God who doesn't know what he's doing, right? Astaghfirullah. Mm. But trial and error, right? Like yeah, trial, trial and, and error. error. Yeah, yeah. So these, these are the kinds of implications um, or these are the kinds of things that people think about when we, t- when we talk about natural selection and random mutation. So these are not scriptural issues as such. These are more of theological or metaphysical discussions. And mm-hmm. so that's why these require different domains when you're talking about them. And mm-hmm. in the book, what I try to do is I separate the metaphysical questions from the hermeneutic questions. So, the fir- so in my personal way of engaging with science or religion, any scientific theory, if you want to check its validity, it must cross through two filters. The first filter is, can God do it? Yes or no? Hmm. Can God do it? Yes or no? If God cannot do it, you don't need to bother to go to scripture. There's no even need to go to go scripture, right? That's why metaphysics precedes hermeneutics. Hmm. Understanding what God can do precedes what scripture is saying to us, right? And of course, this conversation requires us to understand God's existence, God's nature, what kind of God do we believe in? Do we believe in a God that just created and left us? Or is he actively involved in the universe? Mm-hmm. And also how he relates to the universe. Like, can he do miracles? You know, can he change the laws of nature? So this is where the first conversation of metaphysics comes in. And then this is how you can then deal with the problem of naturalism and randomness. So this is where that conversation takes place. Then you move on to scripture. So if God can do it, if he can create us through evolutionary processes, then how do you deal with the question of Adam? This is where you need usul. So you need um, basically principles of how to interpret scripture, right? Mm. You, you can't go to scripture willy-nilly and just make up your own, own paradigm and start doing your own thing. 
Otherwise, everyone can say, this is my opinion, this is your opinion. Yeah. And therefore, all meaning is lost. All meaning is lost, right? So we need to have a clear set of guidelines, which our scholars have developed. They have developed mm -hmm. these over the past 1,000 years, right? If you apply them, what kind of things can you get in terms of arriving at possible compatibility theses, right? And more than that, what this framework allows you to do is, one, understand what is fixed, what cannot be debated, right? There's some things in scripture we cannot debate about. For example, mm -hmm. if somebody says the oneness of God is a metaphor, that means I can accept two gods, three gods. Immediately, that has comp that has implications like mm -hmm. you leaving the fold of Islam, because exactly. no Islamic scholar will believe in that, right? Mm -hmm. But we have other things where there are debates, right? Where there are nuances. There, there are kind of things that are open to interpretation, right? Mm -hmm. So this is what the the scriptural side side does. It, it allows you to understand what is clear. Right, what is kind of agreed upon that you just don't want to kind of mess with and what has flexibility. And that's why you need to kind of navigate both of these conversations very carefully. And which is why I feel personally, most Muslims feel very baffled by evolution because you have to dip your feet into science. Mm. You have to dip your feet into theology. You have to dip your feet into hermeneutics, into philosophy. It's a lot, it's a, it's a lot, right? So, but that's why what I've tried to make the material here as easy as possible in terms of language so that even if you have very little background in all of these it may help you kind of get over that mountain of doubt mm. but even even with um you know uh people trying to engage with evolution i, th I think the fundamental problem is again this binary that's in people's minds yeah right them saying well evolution is we come from apes and islam says god created adam uh, yeah. salam, and okay they're at all just one another which camp am i going to choose and so right. today's discussion inshallah uh will present several answers um uh four answers in particular which um the listener can either discern and decide for themselves or to choose some of the ones that are agreed upon by everybody so um the four schools of thought um we can begin with creationism. Do you mind explaining what creationism is? Yeah, so before I do, let me just explain okay. to people what, what these are. So when I scour through the literature, so there, there are at least 20 different opinions, consciously chosen opinions that I look at. And then from there, I then have my own classification scheme. And this is what uh, Ahmed is referring to as schools of thought, right? Or schools or madahib. Um, so the, the, these four schools of thought are primarily based on what you can and cannot accept are products of evolution, okay? So can this thing come out of evolution? Yes or no? This is what I'm trying to explain. So the first position is creationism. This position fundamentally believes that evolution, i.e. common ancestry, is false. In other words, it means that God created every species instantaneously, miraculously. They're not related. There is no such thing as us deriving from another previous species, none of that exists. That's just hocus pocus. So creationism is fundamentally the position that the core of evolution, common ancestry, is fundamentally false. That's the position of creationism. So I don't know, do you want to move on or do you want so to- So creationism is what, what most people traditionally think the answer is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, remember, prior to Charles Darwin, people always thought that, even Christians thought that all of us were created instantaneously. Species were created instantaneously by God himself, right? Hmm. But it was only after 1859, which is when Charles Darwin published his book, 
that this idea really started um, taking a hold in society. And so therefore, this is a modern question which requires modern answers. No mm. alim of the past discussed common ancestry. For this mm. reason, they never engaged with this question, right? Mm. So, it, and they, they also didn't discuss other questions like cryotechnology, quantum mechanics. So just because they fail to understand it, does that mean I now have to reject it? Of course mm. not. You have to be true to the past by engaging with their methodology and you can still engage with contemporary questions mm. that have new answers. One of the problems I feel is uh, uh, people who come from a traditional background feel that they're abandoning that just because it's a new inquiry, whereas you don't necessarily need to do that. Mm. New, the Imam Ghazali would not be who he is if he didn't engage with the concern of his time. People mm. who follow the Salafi thought, Ibn Taymiyyah would not be a revolutionary thinker unless he engaged with the questions that he had against Imam Ghazali. Mm. All of these were revolutionary thinkers because they went against the grain of their times. Not necessarily in a bad way that they want to just be revolutionaries. That's not the point here. The point here is they engage with the doubts, the concerns, the questions of their period. What is that for us today? Evolution is undoubtedly one of them. Exactly. So um, would you say that the majority of our scholars today um, would fall under this camp? So I would say they would fall... fall uh, I think they won't fall on this. I think they may fall on this, but also the second position, which is human acceptance. Okay. I think okay. It'll be one of the two. Okay. So just so so creationism is the idea that there is no common ancestry. Every yeah. creation, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala created individually, um, yeah. and uh, this is the school of thought that traditionally our scholars took on the matter, and this is the thought that most people have on this topic. Um, yeah. So now we get to the second one, which is human exceptionalism. Yeah, so human exceptionalism is, 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 is simpler. All it says that evolution can be true for all of the animals, all of the plants, everything you want to imagine, except for humans. That's the name is self-evident, right? Human exceptionalism. So humans are an exception to the process of evolution. So the tree of life was working its way up, but then whoop, Adam came into existence and he, Adam and all of his descendants are excluded from the process of evolution. That's what human exceptionalism argues for. So how can one, um, if one were to take this position, how would one reconcile this with the idea that there were Neanderthals, that there were all these different types of human species? So, um, so some people who take human exceptionalism, some of them don't bother with reconciling, right? Some of them don't really care. They just want to say we are, we are exceptions to the process of evolution and that is it for them, right? Some of them don't really care about it. Mm -hmm. Others do care about how to reconcile. One of them is Sheikh Hassel Qadi and Nadir Khan. So Nadir Khan is, you know, he works for the Yaqeen Institute. He's their production manager in terms of the articles that come out. And Yasser Qadi, you know, famous scholar, you know, all of us know him, mashallah. Um, and so he argues for this position. Uh, and the way he does it is very simple. And, and I found when I first heard of the solution back in 2014, when, when he did his um, presentation at Adam Dean, what was really remarkable was that he looked at the same data point, but from two different perspectives. And from there, he was able to make an excellent um, compatibility thesis. So his thesis is very simple, okay? Say Adam popped into existence, Eve popped into existence at whatever number of years ago, let's just say for the sake of the argument, right? And uh, their miracles creation, so he doesn't, he doesn't deny that whatsoever. Uh, now he simply says, if Adam and Eve were created miraculously, but if God implemented in them all the requirements, for example, they had the right genetics, the right physiological structures, all of that stuff is there. So Allah imp imprinted on them all these things that scientifically speaking, if you see the fossil record or if you see 
all of these skeletons or these skulls, you know, in the in in the in the, in the stratification of the ground, you would see perfect continuity. So there would be no like disruption as such. Perfect mm-hmm. continuity, right? So God can do that. Theologically, it's still valid that He created Him miraculously. But from a scientific viewpoint, which remember is blind to miracles, no problem. So in science, it renders a perfect continuity. So what's mm-hmm. the problem? From a theological angle, however, we know because we have access from Quran and Hadith that this is what actually happened. This is what mm. actually happened. Right? So this is the way he reconciles. And like I said, looking at the same data point, but from different domains with their limitations. Science does not entertain miracles, but you can use science to argue for evolution. No problem. But from a theological angle, which is now outside the domain of science, because remember, theology is broader than science. Theology says, God created Adam and Eve miraculously, right? Uh, and uh, that's it. But science, because it's, it has no, nothing to say about miracles, it just takes continuity as a given. Mm. What's the problem? And this is, I feel, the most attractive option for many Muslims who do believe in evolution today. One of the most, I would say, mm-hmm. attractive options, I'd say. This so, is, yeah. Human exceptionalism, again, in its name, is the idea that humans are the exception to the theory of evolution. That yeah. everything is related. Monkeys, apes, giraffes, chimpanzees, all of these go back to one common ancestor. But the human species is is a, is a unique creation of Allah yes. subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, they are not part of common ancestry. They, they share their own ancestors, meaning our common ancestor is Adam alayhi salam. But, but nothing we don't, before that. Yeah. Um, what is the... Why do you think this, I mean, you briefly touched upon this, but why is this the theory that usually has um, the most uh, backing from, like, why do scholars and people mostly follow under this camp? Well, I think it's for the same reason creationists fall, because they, they are wedded to a tradition which has held a certain opinion for a very long time, right? So what is the most intuitive response? How can it be closest to the past and yet still engage with the contemporary phenomenon? So here you maintain adam and eve's miraculous creation you do that and you also maintain that humans are noble and you know special of some kind and so that's the reason why i think these are very intuitive responses i mean i would expect nothing less for most muslims to to be drawn to this kind of position it it Mm. makes sense i i I think it makes perfect sense Mm. given what we the emphasis that we have had in our tradition about one adam and eve being the first of men mankind right and then taking on that and then building up an exceptional process of evolution. Hmm. But again, even with this position, there are still problems from an evolutionary standpoint, correct? Yeah, yeah. So from a scientific viewpoint, um, if, you, if you make that the case, right? Okay, that's fine. I mean, some people c- can object by saying, hang on, isn't that, doesn't that make for a deceptive God? Like, isn't God deceiving you by telling you, hang on, if you take your sciences, yeah, everything looks perfect, but then this one guy here, he's an exception to the process. Doesn't that make for a God who lies or is trying to trick you, astaghfirullah, right? And Sheikh Qadi, he has a response to this. He makes a very good um, anything response to this. So he says, well, if you're arguing that way, that is no longer a scientific contention. You're arguing in the territory of theology. Um. Right? That's not a scientific problem, right? And if you don't argue against miracles, again, miracles just assumes that laws of nature are uniform. They, they work the same way throughout, right? But in Islam, we believe that Allah can change the, miracle, the nature of laws for miracles. Mm-hmm. We accept that as a bit, as an axiom. That is not an axiom or a baseline that scientists accept. 
right? Hmm. So given these these differences, there's no problem. Right? Hmm. He still maintains what, like I said, his emphasis is maintain the boundaries of each discipline. Now I know scientists may not like to hear that because they, particularly if they're so fascinated by scientific progress and scientific methodologies, they can answer everything. That's scientism. Mm -hmm. from, from our perspective, that is complete scientism. But um, from a theological angle, it's jazz. It's absolutely fine. Mm. Nothing wrong with that. But also like, like this idea of miracles from a theological perspective, um, you know, and you touch and, and people will find that when they read your, your book, there's a lot of creed in it because yeah. um, as much as, as much time as we devote to understanding what evolution is, we also need to understand what Islam is um, yeah. and what the creed is because it has very important implications. Um, I don't want to go off on tangent, but like this idea of miracles, I want to hear your thoughts on this just because it's related, but from a, like an Ashari perspective, um, yeah. there is, a miracle when when somebody says god did a miracle for example um when uh, ibrahim alayhi salam was thrown into a fire and the fire didn't burn him we would say that you know i mean society will say that's a miracle but from our perspective we would say that nothing contains any intrinsic value except that if it's from allah and so the fire does not burn anybody unless allah gives it the property of burning and so when Ibrahim السلام, is thrown into a fire, it's not a miracle. It's just that at that moment, Allah didn't give it the power to burn, right? Right, right. So, I mean, before we, before we get to that particular point, I just want to explain to whoever is watching what Sunni paradigm is, because I think many people may not know that and may not know the internal nuances, right? Yeah. So Islam has many camps. We have Sunni brothers and sisters. We have Shi'i brothers and sisters, right? And within those paradigms, you have, Again, many different camps, right? So in, in Shi'i thought, you have Isma Ashari, you have um, Zaydi, you have Ismaili, right? Within Sunni camp, there's three schools of thought. There's the Ash'ari system, there's the Maturidi system, and then there's the Athari system, right? Now, they have their theological differences, right? Sometimes it's you know, major issues, sometimes minor issues, but this is Sunni paradigm. This is what we refer to as Sunni paradigm, right? So if you are a Sunni Muslim, you fall under this bracket. So in the Ash'ari paradigm, this specific model, this is the model I adopt for this book, right? Now, all three schools of thought, however, believe that miracles are possible. So God institutionalized the laws of nature, but he can change those however he sees fit. He can change them, right? Whatever he created, of course he can change. Otherwise, it's, we believe in a kind of a limited God. Once he creates, he cannot change. It makes for a very limited God, right? Mm -hmm. So when we talk about miracles in the past, remember, miracles are what God wills. And they have no reality except unless God sustains it and wills it. Mm -hmm. So if he wills at a particular moment that this pen will turn into a snake, it's possible. He can do it if he wanted to. So all, every single thing in nature is under his control. And he has the absolute power and right to make miracles happen. And this is a fundamental basic belief. That's why one of the problems that we see in Islam and evolution discourse is people who completely embrace evolution, they don't want to entertain miracles. And that's why they have to resort to a lot of um, hermeneutic or uh, metaphysical tactics to interpret the creation narrative of Adam and Eve. But this is me getting ahead of myself. Yeah. Miracles are completely possible in all three schools of thought. The Ash'ari, the Maturidi, and the Athari paradigm. Hmm. And just, just so the, read, uh, read, uh, the, the listener can understand, if I could give an analogy, and it's a metaphorical, don't take it in a literal way, but just imagine that you have the hand of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
and then there's like strings and those strings are attached to every single thing that exists, meaning Allah is behind everything. Um, uh, and it's important to mention that because in this, in the book, but also in this discussion, um, there's a lot of engagement with the creed of this. In fact, your book has more engagement with the creed of Islam than with uh, the science. I mean, the entirety of your book almost is engagement with creed and just briefly mentioning the theory of evolution. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, because I, I, what I try to do is maximum damage scenario, right? This is, this is my, my personal philosophy. You have, a, you have beef, right? I, I don't know if you guys use that term across the pond, no, but if do. you have beef, okay, okay. So if you have beef with a scientific theory, right? Take the worst interpretation in your eyes. Take the worst interpretation, okay? Then flush it through your aqidah and then see how much you can accept, how much you can reject. Neo-Darwinism irks a lot of Muslims because of yeah. scriptural problems, the naturalism involved, atheism involved, randomness involved. Take all of that. Take, let's bring it to the cocktail mix, right? And then just flush it through aqidah. And that's exactly what I do. That's mm -hmm. why I take the science as a given. So many people say, this brother doesn't even question the science. Number one, that is incorrect. I highlight where evolutionary bodies are debating about. It's not common ancestry. It's about the mechanics. I make that very clear. So no matter what the future of the debate is, it is common ancestry that still maintains as an establishment of evolutionary enterprise. The problem here is that when we say evolution is having, evolutions are having debate, they think the whole theory is under the gun, which is mm -hmm. not the case. Evolution is a multi-propositional theory, i.e. it has many claims under it. Which claim are they uh, talking about or debating about? It's not all of them. It's specifically mechanics. That's mm. what they're debating about. So mm. people who think that evolution is debunked or it has holes, that's all wishwash. Of course, evolution is still a process. They, 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 they know there's still things they need to explain, but that's the nature of any science, not just evolution. If science came in full packages, we would not need scientists today. Mm. Exactly. Right? So I take the science as a given and the rest, and, and I just do enough to get the theology started because I am interested in theology. I'm not interested in the science. So mm -hmm. even if you have, even if you completely hate evolution, take the worst case scenario and see how much you can embrace it. Mm -hmm. that, that is, yeah. As a Muslim, yeah, as a Muslim, that's what you need to do, right? Because I personally, I mean, I mean, people can say, no, you need to criticize the theory of evolution first and then see if it works. My point is, this is a waste of oxygen. Allah did not send us to bicker over science. Allah sent us, establish your creed. That's your filter for everything. That mm -hmm. is it. If it filters in, let the scientists do what they're doing. Let mm -hmm. them do what they're doing. Why, why bother? Why am I wasting my time on refutation videos, which unfortunately many Muslim brothers and sisters have done online? Refutation, refutation of evolution. I'm like, get to the theology, get to the heart of the problem. Mm -hmm. yeah, the main thing is just trying to find the, the answer. Of yeah. How do we reconcile the two? Um, so we went a little bit off tangent, but so the two positions that we've mentioned so far, one is creationism, the idea that Allah created everything meaning there's no such thing as common ancestry. Nothing yep. is related. Each species yep. is its own complete species. The second position is human exceptionalism, which is the idea that everything shares common ancestry, but the only thing that doesn't are humans, meaning humans are the, their own species. They are unique. And so when Allah says in the Quran, I'm going to place a Khalifa on the earth, Allah means a, a brand new, like a new species that is, that, that does not have, you know, the Adam is the first. I think that's the easiest way to explain it. Adam is the first. Nobody predates Adam. But we have the third camp, 
which seems to be um, one that's seeing, I think, maybe a revival. Um, and one that I find very interesting is this position of Adamic exceptionalism. So uh, in order for me to explain Adamic exceptionalism, I need to kind of go through the working axiom to make sure everybody understands this position because it's very easy to misconstrue this position. Um, I've tried, because when I first read David, it's, it's proposed by David Solomon Jalajal, right? Um, and uh, when I first read it, I was confused about it. But I saw so that's why I've tried my best to kind of it's, make sure it's clear in my head before it's clear in yours. So let's start with the working principle, which is known as Tawakkuf, okay? Tawakkuf is a principle um, which means just stop. You just stop, right? You stop making any proclamation or declaration, okay? Now, uh, let's say, for example, I encounter a problem in fiqh. So we have a mas'ala, an issue in fiqh, and, I, and we have to resolve it. We need a fatwa on this particular issue. Now, as a scholar who is a faqih can say, I do tawakkuf on this matter, I don't know. So I, I refrain I stay to silent. I stay silent. This is, this is a temporary silence because that person knows there is an answer, I just don't know it. It's a temporary kind of silence. Or mm. maybe the other more senior scholar will know how to address it. Okay, this is, this is that, right? Now, in theology, however, in aqidah, the waqaf means something slightly different. It still has the same base meaning, but it means slight, something slightly different. If we want to say, if we want to make a theological claim that God did something in the past or God didn't do something in the past, you need clear unequivocal text. So if you want to say that God created ponies in the past, it has to say that in the Quran. Mm. If, it's a, if, if, if you want to claim, and this is a theological thing, that God never created ponies in the past, again, you need that from the Quran. You need a statement from the Quran to back it up. Otherwise, you have said something which God himself has not revealed, which is haram. That's haram. To mm. say that God has done something without text is haram. Right? Particularly if you're making stuff that he did in the past. Okay? Now, so let me ask you, Ahmed, right? Very simple yes. question. Uh, does Islam have a problem with dinosaurs? Mm, doesn't really speak. I mean, I saw, it, Nima, I saw, I saw a video of once uh, somebody trying to reconcile the two, but as far as I'm recalled, there aren't any sources that discuss them. Yeah. So there's no sources that discusses dinosaurs. So is it, is it, it, does Islam require you to believe in dinosaurs? No. Is it a religious institution? No. Does it require, does it require you to negate uh, uh, dinosaurs? No. No. From an Islamic standpoint, it doesn't matter. Both are possible. Both are compatible with the Quran because it neither affirms it nor negates it. You see my point? Yeah. Both possibilities are compatible because none of them are problematic if you embrace this or the other. So whatever you embrace at the end of the day is your personal opinion. That's what it is, right? Now, let's use this principle of tawakkuf in the conversation of Islam and evolution, okay? Uh, I just need to add one more principle, okay? Just okay. one more principle yeah. to make it clearer, okay? According to Islam, what is the definition of insan? You're going to, there, I mean, I read your book, so you confused me. <laughs> Before, I would have just said, you know, human beings. Human beings, right? So that's fine, that's fine. But what is the definition of insan according to the Quran? See, guys, this is why you need to do your homework before you host people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Okay. One, one, the root one, one Anasa is the Jadr. Um, my Arabic is getting better, but uh, traditionally it's understood as mankind. Human, I mean, Nas is mankind. 
um, yep. insan is, and then you have insan and you have bashar. It's like people, I'm almost there, but I'm not there. But I, it's traditionally like human beings. Right. The, I mean, the strongest stipulation of what defines mankind are the children of Adam. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, the, that's the Quranic perspective on what we mean by insan. The children of Adam. But Correct? let me ask you a quick question. Um, yep. We have Benny Adam and we have insan. Yep. If these two yep. were the same, wouldn't it just be one word? Yeah, but you can use synonyms, right? So insan means you're stressing on the genus. Benny Adam is emphasizing you have a relationship to Adam. Okay. They strongly stress in two things, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay. so, so that's, that, that, that's not really a main concern. So you can treat them synonymously, but okay. they have slightly different levels of emphasis, right? Okay. So that's the Quranic definition of Adam, that all, everyone who is a child of Adam is insan. Okay? Now let me ask you a question. That is the Islamic definition. What is the biological definition of human beings? The biological definition of a human being is that yeah, he's doing he's doing a quick search on Google. Look, look at this guys. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I had a notification pop up, so I just quickly right. exit. Um, nice save. Okay. Uh, <laughs> is from a from a biological perspective, and you're talking to a, a history major, you're not talking to a biology okay. major at all. Well, I, evolution is a, a is historical biology, right? So it's in your field, bro. Partly. Well, I haven't studied yet, um, but it's, it's basically, uh, he's shaming me on my own podcast. He's not coming back again. <laughs> um, it's, it's basically they are, cause I was researching this yesterday. When you, when you say humans, you're not saying homo sapiens, but you're referring to a broad class of species such mm-hmm. as the Neanderthals, the homo sapiens and all of these different species. So I think when you say humans, it's all from a biological standpoint today, you're referring to all of these species and that homo sapiens is just one strand of the many homo the homo sapiens are one genus of the of the species right so yeah so i mean that's it so remember biology does not deal with religious propositions like mm-hmm. you're not going to see in a, in a religious textbook the definition of human being is a product of adam and eve that just does not exist yeah the definition of mankind or sorry, of humans or homo sapiens are entities that look like us, that have the same physiological traits as us, you know, bone structure, whatever have you, okay? Now, so is the Islamic definition, the biological definition the same? No. They have overlap, but they're not necessarily the same, okay? Now, here is the simple question. Uh, Using both of these understandings, so first thing we established was tawakkuf. If the Quran is silent, you cannot make an affirmation or negation. Principle number two that we looked at just now very briefly, the Quranic definition of mankind is not the same definition of biological mankind or homo sapiens, mm-hmm. right? Or homo, whatever category you want to use, okay? So when Adam and Eve popped into existence miraculously on earth, does the Quran say anything about human beings on earth, right? They may be similar to us or maybe slightly different to us, but does the Quran say anything about any other kinds of existences that may be similar to us at all. Does it say anything about it? Not that I am aware of, no. Zero mention. The Quran says nothing about that whatsoever. It neither negates that possibility, nor does it affirm that possibility. Right? Mm. So basically so you're no. saying the Quran, the Quran does, not, um, does not negate the idea that there were these other types of human species, nor does it affirm that these other species existed, 
So we could take the position of tawaqaf, meaning we can just stay silent on it because yes. it's not of that of importance for us. Yes, because the Quran doesn't make it. If Allah said that on earth there was nothing else, khalas, game over, mm-hmm. game over. But the Quran does not say that. The Quran never said that, right? Mm-hmm. So when Adam and Eve, okay, when Adam and Eve popped into existence miraculously, okay, they had their kids, right? Cain and Abel, right? And all the descendants follow on, etc., right? However, because the Quran is silent on there being these other human beings that could have come out of evolutionary processes, right? It's silent about that. It is therefore theoretically possible that some of Adam's descendants married these other people. Mm. Possible. And therefore, forging a link, a lineage, which then explains why some human beings today have Neanderthal genes in them, have Denisovan mm. genes in them. It explains that, okay? Now, the, to be clear, that David is not saying that it happened. That David is saying it could happen, it could not happen. Tawakkuf. But mm. because that possibility is there, we can accept evolution. Mm. But we cannot compromise Adam and Eve because of textual references. Mm. That is his proposal. That is his proposal. So let me be clear, just to kind of you know summarize this. Number one, the waqf is a position that if scripture neither affirms something nor negates something, both possibilities are open. And you cannot make a religious case because scripture is absent. Scripture is absent about this material. Mm. But Quran doesn't negate dinosaurs, nor does it affirm dinosaurs. Number two, the definition of mankind of insan in the Quran is children of Adam. That's that's what it is. Children of Adam. Okay. Mm-hmm. That does not map onto the definition of Homo sapien, or even the broader category of Homo, right? It could, mm-hmm. ma- it, it doesn't necessarily have to map onto it. So, because of these discrepancies, we believe that Adam and Eve were created miraculously. This is standard interpretation of the Quran, but the Quran is silent about there being other human beings while Adam and Eve were there, right? Created miraculously, mm-hmm. they were there. They may be similar to us. They may be exactly similar to us. They may have some differences to us. Wallahu alam. We don't know. Tawakkuf. You be silent. Okay? Mm. Now, as a result of that, the possibility of Adam's descendants having intermarriages with these other human beings or whatever label you want to give the humanoids, whatever label, because I know people are very sensitive about their human identity. They want to be exclusive. They want to be special, right? But whatever label you want to give these people, these entities there, they could have intermarried with the descendants of Adam. And therefore, we can explain a lineal connection between contemporary human beings and the the rest of the evolutionary timeline. And at the same time, we can also maintain that our lineage goes back to Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. That is his proposal. And that's why it's called Adamic. Now, now within this paradigm, uh, like the closest you can stitch yourself to evolution close you can say that okay Adam and Eve had kids so they're the exceptions but maybe Adam and Eve's immediate kids Cain and Abel married these other entities maybe hmm. right? maybe so the, the very first generation could have married them right maybe not the first generation it could be later second or third or whatever have you it could be down the line but the closest alignment that you can get the closest you can get is Adam and Eve had their kids and the first generation married other people that's why I call it Adamic exceptionism that's the reason why I call it that exceptionalism. Now, that's very interesting that um, like I was already aware of the idea that um, 
So Adamic exceptionalism in the name being that Adam Islam, is the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. That everything... Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, yeah. Uh, that everything has a common ancestry. Every species that existed has it. The other species of the human beings share part of that common ancestry, including the, you know, like the, the Neanderthals and such. But Adam salam, is unique to that. Yeah. That while, you know, for example, on the earth, that you had all these species, Allah then places Adam salam, there. Mm-hmm. And uh, from there, um, you know, we have Bani Adam, the children of Adam. But we are not, we are not part of that common ancestry. We are something unique. Um, the part that I find challenging to believe about that theory um, is this idea that, it, again, it's mentioned that it's a possibility that there could have been some intermarriage between the species because um, I'm assuming now, I mean, I, I'm not well read on the evolutionary literature, but I'm assuming that there are they have found there are human beings alive today who share um, ancestry, like who share ancestry between more than two species. Would that be correct? So simply what it says is that there are some human beings that they, they have genetic material in them that seems to be coming from Neanderthals. Mm. Okay. Which that is, that is why the suggestion of intermarriage is taking place. Right. And this is, uh, this is to a collective part in Europe, right? Not all human mm. beings necessarily have this which suggests that intermarriages did take place. And therefore, some human beings could have lineages that traces back, not just to Adam and Eve, but all the way to the beginning of life through the process of evolution. Mm. The Quran doesn't negate that. Mm. The Quran does not negate that. So when I look in the Quran and I see the story of Qabil and Habil, right? We do see the story of marriage there, um, whether it's in the Quran or whether it's in the Hadith, um, of you know them having their fight over marriage, of who to marry. but. Um, they whoever they wanted to marry were from Bani, Bani Adam. Like mm-hmm. there, um, there's it's I think it's possible, but I think I think all of this comes down to what is a human being, which is a very big question. But when Allah says in the Quran, uh, with that I am going to place a caliph on this earth. Um and the story continues in Surah Baqarah where Allah says, Allah taught Adam the names of everything. Um, when Iblis is, uh, the devil is forced to prostrate to him. In the, in the individual's mind, this is a very unique creation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created that no other species exists like it. So uh, for me personally, the idea that we could marry one of these other species, because for me, the Neanderthals, you know, if these species did exist, they must have been different from the human being and different in the capacity that the thing that makes the human being unique is that we have aql, right? Mm-hmm. We, ha- we have an intellect. Um, and, uh, and if there was a person who was of, uh, you know, a homo sapien who married a Neanderthal, to me, it's just difficult to grasp that that would come out like a normal person instead of, so, go ahead, go ahead. So I have a question for you. Yeah. Okay. So I agree that Adam was given the names, which has a hundred interpretations of some, that verse yeah. can mean multiple things, right? Let me ask you a question. Does it say in the Quran that Adam is the only one with Akam? 
it does not, but it does, but it also doesn't say that any any species. Ah, has. oh, so it does not say that, and nor does it negate that, which means you're using which principle? The walk off. Do not stretch the limit of what the Quran is saying to points of theology. You can mm-hmm. do that in tafsir. You can fill in the gaps of tafsir, make possible narratives. That's what mufassirin do, right? They mm-hmm. try to understand a narrative, fill in the gaps, right? And of course. These narratives are built upon certain presumptions. Some people take from biblical stuff. That's why we have Israeliyat. That's a very important literature, right? That, yeah. are, that we kind of implicated, we absorbed, right? But in terms of theology, the rule is clear. If you want to make a point of doctrine, where's the verse? I agree with you that Adam was given that knowledge, but it doesn't negate that point because even jinn have, they're, they're aqal. Mm. No? Even jinn have that, right? Right, and here's and, and also in Surah Baqarah. I I heard Sheikh Yasser Qadi recently say that they don't. Okay, right. Maybe there's a khilaf here, but I I mean, like from what I can tell, like, they have. Yeah, yeah. Like I'll give you an example. What Sheikh Yasser Qadi says, um, and yeah. I know I know uh, my following is very interested in the supernatural. Um, uh, I did I did a video on the Jal and Satanism that got a lot of. Uh, I was telling the story of Jack Parsons. Um, okay. And so they loved it, but um, one of the things that Sheikh Yasser Qadi was saying about the jinn is that whenever you interact with them, you see that you can't really use logic with them. And he says, the reason being is, you know, what he says, they don't have like the sense that we have, right? Um, I don't want to, I'm going completely off tangent, but um, from my presumption, it is that, and what Sheikh Yasser Qadi said, is that human beings are the only species that do have aqal. Okay, right. So you you can take a preference in there, but I'm saying, give give me the scripture. Okay. Give me the scripture that's qat'i on this that there's no other. Give, give okay. me that. Okay. And I'll be satisfied, right? Okay. So that's one thing. The other thing is, right, in that same uh, set of verses, what do the angels say when they see Adam? Uh, that um, are you going to cause another corrupt? Are you going, are you going to create another creation on the earth that will cause corruption? Asad and shed blood. And shed blood. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So now there are a couple of interpretations about this, right? A person who is a creationist who denies it, right? It's very interesting. He said that he suggested this possibility. Now, this verse is open that it is referring to the other entities that looked like Adam. Because only when Adam was created, the angels asked this question, right? Now, some people say it's jinn or shaitan or whatever have you, right? But shaitan do not have blood, they don't bleed. So only when they saw mm. it, I mean, that's a possibility, right? Mm. Again, I'm not saying this is true. I'm saying, Wallahu a'lam. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. Because um, this is traditionally understood to be the, the war between the jinns, right? Again, which are based on a hadith. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Uh, but I'm, I'm just, I'm putting it out there, right? Yeah. I, I like what, what, what the listener should understand is if you think you're going to get, you know, the, the, the answer, of Islamist evolution, you're in the wrong place. We can <laughs> we can propose potential answers, but we're never going to say this is the answer. So it's important yeah. to exercise all of our uh, all of the possible options. But you know, but when it you know when it comes to that verse, it's traditionally understood that that's the jinns there. But what I think might be interesting, you know, that that you just mentioned is when the angels say, "Are you going to you know create another creation?" Um, it it might be possible that they are seeing the previous creation, which looked similar to the humans, to the Bani Adam, and them saying, 
like are you creating another version of them like that's going to do the same thing because yeah, if it was so, a, go, so, ahead, so go ahead okay on that point to create blood to create mischief what are the prerequisites there must be blood um okay and like, like the, the species might have blood and for it to cause mischief they must have pre-existed and they must have been physical must have been physical but what else get to the point uh they must have been they must know how to fight or create weapons which means they must have what well if animals fight each other they don't yeah. really have weapons they don't really have right. apple I, i agree with you but we're talking about this entity here that they looked at right so it mm -hmm. could be it could be brute forces i have i have no problem with that i'm saying the possibility is not closed mm. if you want to claim it okay. is closed bring your text mm, okay bring okay your text okay so you're essentially saying um let's exercise all of the possibilities and yeah. if scripture is silent on it let's not make a definitive statement yeah so let me let me make one thing clear right because i think people may may uh may find this easier let's just say the quran was never revealed So what so imagine if Allah created us the Quran is not revealed right now whatever in the happened in the past everything is possible God could have created dinosaurs aliens multiple universes it's all open because we have no text okay now the moment Allah sends us a Quran, a revelation like the Quran suddenly some possibilities are affirmed some possibilities are constrained a little bit some are still open right mm. so what is possible before the text is broader than what is possible after the text correct Mm -hmm. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. So the previous possibilities are known as metaphysical possibilities, what can what can and cannot occur. Hermeneutic possibilities is what Allah is saying can and cannot occur. Right? Mm, or did or okay. did not occur. Okay, that's okay. the way to see it. Now, we have clear text, Adam was created in a particular way. He was given, you know, he was he was taught ism, which again, what does that mean? Does that mean just words, few words or all words, language or all language, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. The debates mm -hmm. happen. Just on that there have been debates, right? Yeah. But he was taught something He was taught something. Now to extend this and say there's no other creature on this that has the same or is not similar to this, even if it's not necessarily Adam, it's the level of Adam, but that he may not have like a pro prototype version of Akal. Where's your proof? Hmm. Okay. Where is your proof? And also, you mentioned Khalifa. What does Khalifa mean? Uh, what is the root word? Khalifa. Khalifa. And what does Khalifa mean? Khalifa means like behind. Khalifa means to 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 succeed. So when you have a chain, yeah. Yeah. you know those brackets in a chain. One part is called that, right? Because yeah. you're you're connecting the previous with the future. Yeah. So some people have said the, the idea of a khilaf or, or having a khalif on earth, right? So a khalif on earth is idea of a successorship. Yeah. So what was there is being succeeded over by Adam. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, okay. The the main thing is everybody that's listening to this. is in my position where you know we've been taught all these ideas throughout our whole life and now when we're hearing something contrary it's it's just difficult to relearn some of these things that we've learned not yeah, to say yeah. that right not to say one side is right one side is wrong but it's just like it's a little bit difficult um to understand but for me you know fundamentally when it comes to this position or these four schools and we'll get to the the last one Let's quickly get to the last one because uh, it's yeah. it, it, the, the no exceptions clause. Yeah, so let me just recap the three positions so that we can okay. then follow on, right? So creationism, common answer is completely false. Human exceptionism, evolution is true except for human beings, and this picture assumes that Adam and Eve are the first human beings. 
nothing else, right? This yeah. person, this, and that's fine. Adamic exceptionalism is a position that Adam and Eve are exceptions to the process of evolution, but there could have been other definition, other human beings, pseudo human beings, humanoids, whatever label you want to give them, and they could have intermarried with the kids of Adam and Eve. Now, one outstanding question that I, not, I did not explain is, well, how then do you say they're Benny Adam? Any kid that's, a, that's produced as a result of that marriage will be Benny Adam. Any kid, right? Mm -hmm. Benny Adam means what? That you must be a child of Adam. So anyone who is created out of a mother or a father is automatically Benny Adam. It becomes absorbed in that tree, mm -hmm. that family tree, okay? So that is Adamic exception. Now, the last position is the most easiest one. It's the complete opposite of creationism. They believe everything, everything came out of evolution. So even mm -hmm. Adam and Eve had a mother and father. That's this position. No exceptions means there is no exception to the process of evolution. Every single entity must have had a mother and father. Okay? And there are various ways that people try to do this to, to, to reconcile this with the Quran. They'll say it's a metaphor. It's a story of some sorts. They'll reject miracles and a bunch of stuff. Right? There's some very vivid readings in there. So I've, I've shared these in the, um, in the book. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, this is what this camp tries to do. So yes. you have creationism, human exceptionism, Adamic exceptionism, and then no exceptions. So mm -hmm. these are the four camps. I haven't given my judgments yet about which ones are valid and which ones are invalid, but this is the classification that I deal with in the book. Hmm. So the no exceptions camp basically believes that everything shares a common ancestor, that human beings have a common ancestor uh, with monkeys, with apes, with, with giraffes, with lions. All of us share the same ancestor and we wholeheartedly believe evolution to be true. And people who adopt this position, like you said, will argue that, Adam السلام, is a metaphor, um, mm. which has um, huge implications that one must live through. And so um, it's safe. You know, I will put myself out there. Um, the no exceptions camp is one I don't really buy. And uh, many, many, many people do not buy as well. Um, but okay, now that we've said this, out of these four positions, which ones are ones that we can actively take and which ones you think are, you know, unorthodox to say the least. Right. So let's, let's divide possibilities. What is possible and impossible according to two paradigms, right? What is metaphysically possible? So can God do it? And then what is scripturally possible? So these are two different questions. These are not okay. the same questions. Okay? okay. Now, metaphysically possible is, can Allah do this? Yes or no. So can Allah do creationism? Ahmed, yes. Can he create us through creation? Yes, he can. Okay, perfect. Can he create us through human exceptionalism? Yes. Yes. Can he create us through Adamic exceptionalism? Yes. And then can he create us through no exceptions? Yes. So all of these, no, no position in here is atheistic intrinsically because yeah. all of them are under the power of God. Mm -hmm. so we, got, we got that right. Yeah, that, that yeah. should be set out straight. That according to Allah's creative powers, all four are jaiz, they're possible. So there should be no debate here. We're not, we're not saying that these actually happen. We're saying... It is possible under what we know of the God we believe in. And mm -hmm. let's move on to scripture. So now if we take scriptural constraints into consideration, no longer metaphysical. So not, the metaphysical is broader. Scriptural. So what did Allah say? What did he do? What did he not do? Those questions in scripture. Are these possible? Now, is creationism compatible with scripture? Yes. It's absolutely compatible. There's no, there doesn't seem to be a denial of uh, you know, creationism there. Mm -hmm. Is scripture compatible with human exceptionism? Yes, it's also compatible, right? And is it compatible with Adamic exceptionism? Yes, it is compatible. What it is not compatible with is the, is the no exceptions camp. 
that position scripturally would be problematic in the framework, at least the one that I've dealt in this book. So Adam and Eve cannot be compromised. Their, their miraculous reading cannot be compromised. And this is the position across the board in Sunni Islam generally, okay? Hmm. Now, at this point, okay, so we have now three possibilities, three possibilities, creationism, human exceptionism, and Adamic exception. And you're saying, which one is the answer? And my answer simply is, it is up to you. Hmm. According to the theological framework that I have developed here, all three are valid. So if you believe in evolution, okay, take your pick. You want to be human exceptionist? There's your answer. You want to be an Adamic exceptionist? There's your answer. Okay. If you want to negate these possibilities, if you want to say that both of these are wrong or Adamic exception is wrong, you need to prove how they're wrong. Where is the scriptural text here? Okay. So that, that needs to be done, right? But otherwise, all of them are possible. So what does this now mean? If you adopt the Ash'ari paradigm, if you adopt the conclusions of this book, if, I, I, have, I highlight if, hmm. if you adopt that, then that means there is absolutely no reason to bicker over creation and evolution anymore. That conversation needs to get out of our mindset, focus on other things, focus on your spirituality, theology, mm. whatever. But this conversation needs to go. It needs mm. to be dumped down the drain. Mm. You know, so when we look at, so the no exceptions camp, you know, we can rightfully say that that is an unorthodox position, uh, one that has problems. But when it comes to the other three, you know, I was speaking to Subur Ahmed uh, before before uh, this, and I was asking him, and he said, "Look, you know, I fall. You know, we can fall under the first any of these three. Pos- the first three positions are fine, right? In terms of what is the right answer of the three, Allahu Alam." Exactly. Allah knows. Allahu Alam. That right? exactly my point. Allahu right? Alam. Allahu Alam. Allah knows best. You can choose one of these three. If you are more evolutionary inclined, you can take the the Adamic exceptionalism point. If, for example, if I'm asked by an evolutionary biologist what Islam's perspective is on the matter, and I had to solely choose one position, I would probably choose the Adamic one. But so you can, you can take any of these three positions, but ultimately, at least for me, um, with all three positions, with creationism, the idea that Allah created everything, there is no common ancestry of human exceptionalism, the idea that humans are the exception to the rule uh, of common ancestry. And then number three, the idea that Adamic exceptionalism, that Adam السلام, is the exception to the rule. When it comes to balancing a theological and a, evolutionary uh, evolu- modern evolutionary perspective no answer still has me 100% content mm-hmm. every answer there's still something about it that bugs me from a creationism perspective that's kind of the way i look at life mm-hmm. everything i see i'm like okay this is a creation of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so th- that's that um for adamic exceptionalism and uh, human exceptionalism, which I kind of almost put together just because they're a little bit close, even though they're not. Um, from an evolutionary perspective, Adamic exceptionalism, it, it can make sense. I don't have any issue reconciling those two. But from a theological perspective, you know, we, one thing we haven't talked about, which you mentioned in your book, is the idea of teleology, of design, and how everything Allah creates has like purpose and meaning and even though this disposition does not negate it, it's just, it's almost implied. Like when a general reading of the Quran, when I do it, it's almost implied that like, this is a very 
unique creation that no creation like it has ever existed. Like, okay, well, yeah. Let, let me let me interject there. Okay, so you say Adam is unique, correct? Yeah. Yes, he's unique. How does Adam's kids marrying these other entities remove that uniqueness? Well, not well, uh, not necessarily that point. The idea that um, these other species mm-hmm. of the hum- of humans because they're somewhat similar to Adam, it's almost implied that from like, from my sense, like these don't really exist. Like you get what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Where's your proof? That's what I said. That's that's what I said. Where's your proof? So let me tell you, ulama have even debated about whether animals have souls or not, right? They've debated that. There's no consensus on this issue. Some say yes, some say no, some say possible. Wallahu alam, right? Now, we're talking about entities closest right up to Adam on the evolutionary timeline, mm-hmm. right? They may, and remember, soul is not a static entity. You may have more advanced souls. You may have less advanced souls. It fluctuates, right? You could have levels. So can we ever deny that they don't have souls? Where's your proof? It just means radical, ra- this kind of approach is literally the most conservative approach you can take with hermeneutics. Mm. Okay. You stop where speculation starts. Hmm. You it's, completely it, stop. This is, it's an important principle, the walk of, of, yeah. of staying silent. But let me, let, let me give the, the reader a glimpse into my mind what's going on right now. Okay. okay? Picture yourself um, hundreds of thousands of years ago. Okay. And you're just you're looking at what's going on on the earth. And you have <laughs> these creatures which look very similar to human beings. And they're walking around, they're making their fire. Um, they're somewhat interacting with one another. Um, and then, then Allah says, I'm going to create a very unique creation and place the human being down. And then you see the humans, for example, maybe they're interacting with them, or maybe you just, you're seeing both of them in their own camps. And you're like, you know, there's similarities between the two. Like it's not that unique of a creation, mm-hmm. but what is the uniqueness? I'm, I'm probing you though. Okay, 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 okay. From a physical standpoint, um, mm-hmm. and I know you did mention this in your book, from a physical standpoint, it's not really, they're not really that unique, we can say, correct? Yep. Okay. Let's go okay. with that. But, yep. So my question is, what is human uniqueness? Human, what, when I think of human, and what I think doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, um, but when I think of human uniqueness, I think of both body and soul. Okay. All right. Okay. Right. And that is because just of inferences that you've made. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. right. And also so, like, like, like in the Quran, Allah talks about creating Adam. There's like hadiths again, they're not understood to be literal, but like metaphorical, like that, like Allah created Adam. And I know you have your other proofs, which you mentioned. I did my research. So I, I know what your, I know okay. what your points are, but okay. it's, it's like implied that this is even, even the physical um, in Surah uh, Watin, right the human being is created in this you know like a great that that's not sort of thing that's what loss uh, i mean uh 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 what you know was i don't know what you know how to was right before the mother now continue continue the verses no, no, don't, don't, don't atomize and stop Continue, it says, mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with the body. 
it, it, it's talking about piety. Where is the body? I know that. So I mentioned how some people have used this to interpret evolution, right? But it has nothing to do with the body. Mm. Continue. Okay. Don't just stop at one verse. <laughs> no, I just it, like I wasn't doing that on purpose. I just that's how yeah. I just been traditionally. It's a standard reference. That's a yeah. standard reference. But I'm saying, any we we do not dissect principles based on atomized verses. We look at the context. Yes. Right? Okay. So and okay. if you look at the context, it's very clear that Allah is talking that we creating the best, then we reduced you to a lowly status. Mm-hmm. Except for those who do what? Okay. But in my mind still, and I think for most people, the uniqueness of Adam alayhi salam is the, the physical, but also the inward, which is the soul. And I think when it comes to the soul, um, the, you know, they say, uh, you know, the definition, I think, of a human being from certain, I think, I, think, I don't want to mention scholars' names because I don't want to, attribute things to them which uh, uh, i may be uh caricaturing but they say that a human being is a rational you know somebody who is rational mm-hmm. i think i think maybe even like aristotle or somebody said i want another i want another yeah, i want another logical animal yeah right so do you now i'm going to put you on the spot <laughs> so now you'll yeah. know how it feels <laughs> um, go for it <laughs> pressure's on bro <laughs> <laughs> i should have been questioning somebody else not you <laughs> um now, do you think that these other creatures, we touched on these other creatures, that they had a source of aql, they had a sense of rationality? I'm saying they could do. They may not necessarily have the same level as us. They may have slightly okay. different, maybe on a meta level that's, okay. that's lower than us. I'm just saying that the Quran makes it clear that Allah gave Adam takrim. He created him in a very unique fashion. Allah says he blew his spirit into him. Allah made angels mm-hmm. bow down to him, right? Mm-hmm. But all of those do not negate the possibility of these other entities. Perhaps uh, in his wisdom, he created this one entity that could look like every uh, entities existing on earth. But what made him unique is the soul and the way he was created. Okay. And what's wrong with that? So if you're saying the two things that make Adam السلام, unique are his soul and the way he was created. To you, if there was another creation that had similar things like these two, would you find that problematic? No, because in Ash'ari theology, God can do whatever he wills. He, str- he, does not, okay. he does not conform to what I think is unique and special. He can do mm-hmm. whatever he, he, he does and the way he defines it. Mm-hmm. Right? Ash'ari, the basic understanding of Ash'ari theology, do not try to guess God's will because you can never guess it. Mm. But uh, what I'm trying to highlight is doesn't doesn't it imply that if there's another creation that has things similar to Adam, that Adam becomes less unique? Why? Tell me why. Explain your reasoning. So you're saying this entity, Adam and Eve, right, created miraculously. That's already, I mean, amazing enough, right? Yeah. Allah said he blew his spirit into him, which people have debated about what does that really mean, okay? But let's yeah. just say he has a soul. He has a unique soul. Allah made angels bow down to him and Iblis said no, and then that ha- that waffle between them started between Adam and Eve and whatever. Mm. Then Allah brought them down. Okay, Allah brought Adam and Eve, and some say even Shaitan or a snake down, whatever. But they brought them down. Okay, now, okay, this whole narrative already makes Adam very unique. It already makes him very, 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 very unique. Okay, mm. crystal clear, no doubt about it. Okay, I'm saying these other entities, if they marry and they become part of Bani Adam, so all those they have the soul, 
they get the aql, whatever have you, right? Okay? How does that ruin that uniqueness? What is being ruined here that doesn't make them unique anymore? See, now look, people have this, um, this emotional argument that how dare you connect me to a lowly animal? Like, I, mm. I'm not related to a fish or whatever have you, right? So, Ahmed, so this is an emotional argument because it's, it's appealing to ethics or, uh, you know, values, right? Yeah. Let's just start off with the most basic ayah. What did Allah say he made uh, Adam out of? D dirt and clay. From? From where? From, dirt, from mud, like dirt and clay, right? Yes, but from where? Earth, right? Okay. From yes? From, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yeah, okay. Yeah. What do animals poop on? Certain, po certain, certain portions of the earth. Certain portions. You come from that material. That's where you're coming from. I mean, like, humble yourself. That's mm. what I take from that from that verse, right? Humble yourself. That's, so if Allah is saying that's where you're coming from, do you think I have a problem with if I'm related somehow to, to other animal or entities or evolutionary mm. life, whatever? It makes zero difference to me. Mm. Your nobility and particularly what makes you, you know, valid in, you know, the, the idea of taqwa is not your jism. It is your taqwa that makes all the difference in the game, right? Okay. It is how well you, you do good deeds and what mm. you believe in. So in, in your book, you talk about the, the ayat in Surah Al-Isra, وَلَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا بَنِي آدَمِ Allah has mm -hmm. honored the children of Adam. Um, yeah. I can't remember what exactly you said, but one can take that as evidence that this species in particular has been honored by Allah yeah. in a specific manner, whatever it is, but that yeah. this, but I think the, 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 the reverse meaning could also mean that this species has been honored and the other species have not necessarily been honored in this way. You don't know if they've been honored. Okay. Where's the verse before you stretch that, right? You don't know. They may have had a different kind of honor, whatever have you. Yes, you can definitely make the judgment that Allah has given nobility here. Hmm. But then to extrapolate this and that nothing in the planet, nothing in Allah's creation has deserved honor, that's a stretch. Hmm. Theologically, that's a stretch. Okay, okay. Now, okay, things start to make sense. Basically, you know, it took, it took us like an hour to get to this basic point <laughs> yeah. is that everything that you are saying, you are just trying to tell the listener that there are possibilities. Yes. And I'm doing this from the framework of theology. So just to explain this for the people who are unfamiliar, right? So each domain has certain thresholds, right? When you're talking about the threshold of tafsir, the, like, you try to build narratives that kind of fit the gaps. So if there are gaps in the ayat, you try and fill them in with hadith, whatever. But if you want to now make a theological claim, by theological claim, I mean, if it's something that is valid, it's either bid'ah or kufr. This is mm -hmm. what I mean by valid, right? Now, we all positions, creationism, human exception, Adamic exceptionism are valid. They're theologically valid, both scripturally yeah. and metaphysically, yeah? Now, uh, somebody will say, okay, what about Adamic exceptionism? So what is, our, what, is our, what is our intellectual heritage say? One, that Adam and Eve were born miraculously. Now, that's one claim. Does Ad Adamic exception neglect that? No. Two, all of us, every single human being on earth can trace themselves back to Adam and Eve. Does Adamic exception reject that? No. no. The only thing it's saying, there's a possibility. Yani, there is a possibility that some of Adam's kids could descendants, sorry, not kids, 
could have intermingled with these other entities. That's mm -hmm. it. Is that a point of aqidah? Have you ever come across a book that that is a point of aqidah? No. No, that is not a theological proposition. Mm. It, you're not going to be asked on the day of judgment, did you believe this or not? Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. All, as long as you believe Adam and Eve are miraculously created, we can trace ourselves back to them. We have nobility. Allah has given us the cream. All of these things are valid. But that possibility, because remember, you have to go on the day of judgment. And if you are 100% sure that this, has, this is not, this possible does not exist, you will be questioned for that on the day of judgment. That's why mm -hmm. I show Imam Ghazali, he is fine with not having answers. Mm -hmm. We live in a world where we always want answers. And this is the effect of science on our mentality, right? Mm -hmm. On our psychology. We always want answers. But in theology, if there's nothing there, keep it open, bro. Mm. Keep it open. Mm -hmm. Don't okay. force something that's not there. Mm. Okay. Okay. So I think we've, we've gotten your answer there. Now, so for, you know, the lay folk, um, including myself, and I know you would probably, out of your humility, you'd put yourself in that camp too. Definitely. Um, I would definitely put myself in there. Yep. For, for the lay folk, um, now that we've been told there are these three positions now it's, it's up to us. We can choose whatever position we want. Um, again, it's not a matter of creed, but now that the shubuhat, the doubt is gone because we, yeah. we, we choose whichever one we have. Now, my question is, is clearly, and you have mentioned this in the conclusion in your book, there is still some work that needs to be done for the people, the people at the top, right. Or the intellectuals on Still, there are certain things that we should still try to reconcile, and there's still some improvement. After the publication of your book, you've attended a number of conferences on evolution with some of you know the leading scholars on this subject. What is next for the theory of evolution and Islam, or is there even a next? So I think uh, there's still some outstanding papers that I need to write. Um, so one thing that I'm doing is like, like I said, this conversation will never stop with just one book. I mean, that, that doesn't really yeah. happen. So what I'm now working on is a textbook on Islam and evolution. So imagine you can take a full course on the subject and mm -hmm. therefore make your own opinion. So what we just discussed is one hour. Imagine like a full 12-week course, each one two hours with assessments, etc. And that is there to give Muslims even more confidence in how to, one, be familiar with the science of evolution, two, understand theology, and then three, how to apply that theology to a conversation like this. Now, mm -hmm. they may say, I, I'm still a creationist. Fine. I don't have a problem with that. Be a creationist, right? But at least understanding how to connect these domains is, I feel, very, very important. So I think the next step for me is working on education uh, and then see how people take the conversation forward. Some people might disagree with, with the conclusion of the book. You know, they'll say, okay, this is a very Kalam-focused book. Maybe it's not spiritual enough. Fine, okay, I'll take that. That's not a problem. It doesn't have spirituality. Though I do mention that Ghazali does discuss the soul as a, mm. as a unique factor about the human being. I do mention that even though that was slightly out of my methodology in the book, because I say this is strictly a Kalam book. But, um, but yeah, I think that's the next step. And then following that um, is, is a book that I'm hopefully working on with David, where you know all these sub-conversations about the creation of Adam. So where was he created? Is the garden heaven? Is the garden on earth? You know, um, when, mm -hmm. when were they excluded? Does, does Hadith and Quran tell us when he was created like 7,000 years ago, 10,000? All of those mini com micro conversations, we want to put them up in, into a book. Mm, and so hopefully okay. that will be coming out soon. Now there, it's not necessarily, I mean, of course it can be linked to evolution, but there's to show 
that in tafsir, there have been difference of opinions on these issues. So for example, all, I mean, this was a surprise to me. You know the Garden of Heaven, of, yeah. of Eden, sorry, Eden, yeah. where Adam ate from the tree? So that, that, where is that garden? Believe it or not, some ulama said that it's in earth, mm. not in heaven. Right? And, and, and people like Ibn Ashur, who's a very famous scholar, he said, both possibilities are probable. It's not a point of doctrine. It's not a point of aqidah. So just because you brought it up, I, you know, and I'm a very curious individual, um, when uh, if we hypothetically take the stance, um, yeah. and I don't want to get this in a long answer, but if we hypothetically take the stance that the Garden of Eden is um, in uh, on Earth, how then do we interpret in uh, Surah Araf when Allah says to Adam Alaihissalam after eating, um, you know, the apple that you know go down from here? Ohibitu can mean come down from a higher place to a lower place. So that is open. What do you mean by higher to lower place? Uh, Does that okay. mean the garden was on top of a mountain? <laughs> yeah. Right? So, I mean, look, look, I'm not saying these are problem free. Yeah, yeah. I mean, majority of the Mufassirin do say it's heaven, yeah. right? But it doesn't mean it's problem free because that also has some contentions by the people on the other side. But okay. that debate is there. And people as big as Ibn Ashur, they, they, they are perfectly happy saying neither is a point of doctrine. Neither. Mm -hmm. Okay. okay. And I think that is a huge thing that yeah. everybody can take from this, including, you know, myself is if it's not a matter of doctrine, then you can stay silent on the matter. We don't necessarily yes. need an answer for it. Yes. And I think, I think what this conversation has done um, largely is it's closed the door on this topic of Islam evolution in terms of a shubhat because yeah. people if they watch this fully and they comprehend it, their answer on the subject will be answered. I truly believe that. Um, the things that we went through, myself personally, if I never read anything more on evolution in my entire life, I would be 100% content with the three positions. Right? So that's something I think all of the, all of the listeners can take. Um, because, you know, because I've read the book and I've engaged with it, um, it was very easy for me to understand everything that you were, that you were saying here, but um, I would recommend watching it maybe one more time if you're still unsure. But we honestly touched upon, in my, at least in my estimation, the major points of contention that your book talked about. So people can go ahead and read your book if they want a more um, if they want a more in depth you know discussion on this topic. But for the average lay folk, this one video hopefully will answer your questions and will make you feel comfortable when anybody approaches you asking you, what is the topic? What is the answer for Islam versus evolution? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like at the end of the day, many, I think many people will be surprised because they, they think I'm such a pro evolutionist that there's only going to be one answer, hmm. but um, I, because I'm approaching this from the point of theology, I'm saying you cannot close doors when God himself hasn't closed those doors. Mm. So, and, and, and this is Ghazali's methodology. If there are ambiguities or if scripture is silent on something, embrace it. Don't be afraid of it. Mm. And, and we need to be comfortable with not having answers. Many people ask me, what is, what is the hikmah behind 2.5% of zakat? I don't know. No alim in the world will know. Mm. Right? These questions just do not have answers. We don't know. Similarly here, these possibilities are there. Which one is true? Wallahu mm. God knows best. So 
just on just on the closing note, the last question I want to ask you, someone may respond, and I'm sure they probably have told you that your position is problematic because you're reinterpreting the Quran. Mm-hmm. Like you're taking, you know, you're, you're, you're essentially saying the scholars of the past were largely wrong, but now with our new evidence, we are right. How would you respond to a claim like that? Okay, so I think this, this has two, two things, right? Um, number one, uh, the idea that something that we're going against the past has two components. The first component is um, whether this question has been entertained by ulama of the past or not. Evolution is a modern question, okay? Cryptocurrency is a modern question. Hmm. Quantum mechanics is a modern question. Now, just because the ulama of the past did not engage, does that mean we now have no answer to any of these? We stay silent on the matter hmm. and we let these things move on? Of course not. We're not going to sit idle by. We're going to have to develop answers, right? And I, I stress this point. Historically, what made Imam Ghazali himself, what made Ibn Sina himself, what made Ibn Tayyip himself is they engage with the questions of their time. Mm. That is what made them stand out. Now, I'm not saying that this is what we're doing to stand out. I'm saying that our own history is reflective of engaging with ideas that previous folks did not engage with, mm. right? That's the point. History tells us that. History reveals uh, reveals us to that. Now, some people will say, well, hang on, aren't you going against the past? So you're going against the grain? Now, this is mostly, um, you know, referred to uh, when we're talking about uh, Adamic exceptionalism. So what did the past believe in? Adam and Eve are miraculous creations. All of us can trace ourselves back to them. And they generally believed that they're the first human beings, okay? Hmm. Now, they never encountered evolution, ever. All we're saying, we don't compromise in Adamic reflect, uh, exceptions of no one is compromising Adam and Eve's miraculous creation. No one. No one is compromising that we can trace ourselves back to them. All we're saying is, under the principle of tawakkuf, you cannot negate the possibility that intermarriages took place with these other possible entities that existed at the time. Our answer is not that it did happen. Our answer is, wallahu alam. Mm. And as, la- as long as that possibility is there, you cannot close it. Mm. So the only difference that we have is on the question of intermarriage. That is it. And that is not a point of aqidah. Mm. Okay. Now, believing in Adamic exceptionalism, do you have to take the position about the intermarriage? Sorry? So the whole point of, uh, the whole point of Adamic exceptionalism is to state what is excluded from the process of evolution, right? So remember, evolution is about lineage and how those lineages are carrying on. Mm -hmm. So what that means, humans have a lineage with the past. That's what it means, right? So Mm -hmm. if Adam and Eve were created, then that means there must be a continuing lineage with there, or there doesn't have to be. Maybe, uh, maybe, uh, because remember, Tawakkuf allows both, that one they did marry, one they did not marry. Both are possible under the principle of Tawakkuf. But the the closest outcome in Tawakkuf is Adamic exceptionalism. That's why I show, even in the book, that using the principle of tawakkuf, you can go, so one extreme is Adamic exceptions where only Adam and Eve are exceptions to the process. That's one, one degree of difference. And then the other is human exception where the entire category of human beings are excluded. So there could have been these entities, but they never intermarried. God just created mm. us with all the right genetics. Tawakkuf says all of these are possible. Okay. All of these are possible. But okay. the closest alignment, so the absolute closest alignment that you can get is... Adamic exceptionalism, mm. where the first generation could have intermarried with these other folks. Could mm. have been. Okay. We don't know. Okay. Yeah. On that point, just as an extra side note, 
Um, I recently read this like one or two weeks ago. Somebody raised a point because I, whenever I have these conversations, new ideas come up that I have never thought about before. And this is something maybe your audience can maybe think about. One point was, so when Cain did ki kill Abel, when he killed him and he buried him, of course he didn't go back to Adam and Eve. So where did he go? Did he go to maybe other human beings? Right? So where did he go? So that possibility was highlighted to me. I never thought about that. But that well, was just just because we're speaking on the matter from what i've understood is that after cain killed abel um he took the person that he wanted to marry and mm -hmm. married them and went elsewhere okay okay maybe i'm yeah. not sure I, I i i don't i'm not sure about that but i i it was a question that i need to look into okay so remember the the book that i told you about yeah you have to go through so this is yeah. what it's going to okay to. definitely the last thing i just want to ask you about um because we are on the subject is people have, and I felt, I, I felt victim to this, to be honest. And I, I, I retweeted this. I probably have to remove the retweet. Uh, but Vice shared an article saying that Al-Jahiz, oh, I know. I know yeah, an earlier Muslim scholar had already been talking about evolution. Like Muslims were actually at the forefront and people like Ibn Khaldun, people like Rumi, they have been hinting at evolution. So this again, this is an argument that people in the no exceptions camp use, but you discussed this in your book. And how would you respond to that question? So about that vice article, I personally sent an email to them and I know other people tweeted at them. You're completely wrong. Look at this article. Cause I published, it was my first article on science and religion that got uh, published. And so I know that they got the message, but they just never retracted their statement just because of public reputation. They don't want to mm. see this wrong, whatever have you. Right. But um, and you're right, no exceptionists want to kind of show um, or they want to ease this idea that evolution is fine by relaying this idea that people of the past believed in evolution, okay? Like Al-Jahid is a famous one. Ibn Khaldun, Rumi, Ikhwan Safa, these are all big guys, right? Or big, big people in the past. So um, if, you look at, if you look at them historically, right? If any of these be did believe in, in, in this idea of evolution, the first people who would have discussed it were the Mufassirin because mm. it would have directly impacted the creation narrative of Adam and Eve. Do you see that in Tafsir? No. Zero. So just any, from a logical inference, that was the likely outcome of this kind of narrative if it existed in our past. Or if Tafsir would have been filled, or Tafsir, but it, we don't see any discussion of that in there whatsoever. So what were they talking about? They weren't talking about a scientific theory. They were talking about a philosophical worldview known as the great chain of being. And the great chain of being is very simple, that the Allah, or basically the world, everything in reality is divided into orders of perfection. At the, God, at the top is God, right? And then you, you descend in orders of perfection. Then come angels, then come man, then come animals, then come plants, and then minerals, right? But, 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 but are angels ahead of man? Because I've... I, it, in, in great chain of being, yes. Yeah, they're, they're, they're ordered that way. In great chain okay. of being, yeah, they're ordered that way. Right? And who created so, the great chain of being? So it depends on which different philosophy or okay, theology okay. you take up, right? So okay. some of them have more spiritual renderings. So these are just morally symbolic. Some of them are actual. So in Neoplatonic philosophy, these are, you know, it could be the one, the news, universal intellect, they call it sometimes, mm -hmm. whatever, right? But so, from our understanding, the, in, it's the God. Benny, Adam, Benny Adam is above the angels, all right? Uh, so in, in these, in these, they never went to these kind of details. Okay, like, okay, okay. Kind of, it's just humans. Humans were below the level of angels. And prophets were given the ability to go in the realm of angels, which is where they get revelation, and then come back down to the level of mankind. Mm. So that's how they discuss prophecy. 
And that's what people like Ibn Khaldun do in his book, the Muqaddimah. Mm-hmm. So what they what they do is there's a there's an interesting passage where Ibn Khaldun says, So we have minerals, then plants and animals, and then monkeys are the closest to man. And this is as far as our observation goes. Now that paragraph looks, whoa, that's evolution, dude. <laughs> but then you carry on the carry on the passage. He starts talking about the soul. So he's not saying this is what we see. He's saying this is the limitations that we see because there are things inside man that go further than physical observation. Mm. And that spirit is what allows us to enter the realm of angels, which is how you get prophecy. The paragraph is situated in the chapter called How We Get Prophecy. How do men become prophets? So, mm. I mean, there's a complete truncation of texts here. Complete. Mm. Right? And, and do you think these individuals are doing it on purpose? I mean, I cannot question the intentionality here, but I definitely know that it's, it's a way of instrumentalizing historical text to allow people to ease into evolution. Hmm. But I'm saying that that is fundamentally a problematic stimulus because it rests on false assumptions and false readings. Hmm. Okay. There's a, this is such a big topic that we could have spent a lot of time discussing, but I, I'm glad we touched upon the major points. Um, and I, I made sure to do the, to answer the, the, the main questions, the four schools of thought, which one before I got into these later questions, because a lot of times people just can get through the first, maybe 40, 50 minutes and not the whole way. So Alhamdulillah, um, I think, I think you're doing an excellent job on this topic. Um, and I think, um, I think now it's just a matter of really publicizing the, uh, the answers, um, like the, the, the positions and what the answers are instead of, you know, giving this idea of philosophy of science and, you know, therefore I'm out of the way, you know, I'll give you just a funny example to the, to, I'll give to the audience. Um, at our MSA, we were doing a lecture on Islam and evolution about a year and a half, two years ago. Which MSA and is this? This is SFU in Vancouver. Okay. So um, we were supposed to have uh, this big, this big da'wah speaker on who's a, who, who specializes in evolution. Uh, I won't say his name, but you know who I'm talking about. Um, and last minute something happened and they sent somebody else instead who was like a street da'i. Literally a guy who on the streets gives out a mail award and he's a good guy. So he came and our audience was packed. Um, so many non-Muslims. We had many uh, evolutionary biologists there. So everybody was curious. And so this speaker did, he broke it into two halves. The first half was on philosophy of science and the second half was on evolution. And so the first half, he did the philosophy of science explaining that science is always changing, right? That science is a method of, that we use to reach the truth. But it's, it, 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 I mean, do you briefly just want to touch upon the philosophy of science or, yeah, or, no, or do you think science- that's a, a whole other discussion? I think there's a whole other discussion, but just to kind of highlight the relevant point here, philosophy of science is a big topic. There are many topics. It's, I mean, it's not just one thing here or there. It's many topics, right? What are the laws of nature? What is justification? What is the epistemic nature of science, right? Do values affect science? That kind of stuff. So anything to do with science that you can ask philosophically, that comes under philosophy of science. The key, I mean, point that people usually flag up when it comes to the conversation of evolution and just science and Islam in general is the idea of scientific realism and anti-realism, right? So this whole debate about scientific realism, anti-realism is if you have a scientific theory, how much can you commit to it? Because science 
Scientific theories, they have a metaphysical component. So they ask us to believe in certain things. And then they have an epistemic component, or component that they, have, they, they require us to have a certain kind of conviction that these theories have. So for instance, um, quantum mechanics tells us that at the very fundamental level, things are very wavy, right? Electrons pop in and out of existence. And the very facts that, that mm -hmm. there are these things there, right? Now that has an epistemic component that we, we can use instruments, experiments to kind of reach these conclusions. And then the metaphysical, you know, kind of implications like, is the world indeterministic? Are we fundamentally just packets of waves, et cetera, et cetera, right? So these, this is what it means. Now, uh, so there's a spectrum where you have scientific realism on the one hand, where you believe science gives us the entire or the most approximate truth of reality. And then you have anti-realism where science is just in the business of developing models just for the sake of functional purposes, but it doesn't have any truth commitments to it whatsoever. It's just like a, it's just like an instrument. That's why it's mm -hmm. called instrumentalism. It just does the job of calculation. Exactly. So it doesn't actually force us to commit to anything. And so what, what the tactic that people usually do when it comes to the conversation of evolution and maybe other arenas is they'll say, okay, this is a scientific model. You can interpret through anti-realism and therefore the conversation is closed. But in the long run, this just kind of keeps you in midair because if you hold on to anti-realism and evolution keeps advancing, 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 you're pretty much left behind. So it always gives you tentative answers, hmm. which is why I believe you must go back to theology. Exactly. exactly. And so um, what he did in that second lecture is he, a street die, just criticizing the theory of evolution. And you can see the evolutionary biologists just laughing at him. Uh, and the Muslims, they're just laughing. Like what I'm trying to get at is... Um, you know, I, you know, I have, I have a podcast. There is a number of people I could have put on to discuss the topic of evolution. Um, but in the, in terms of the ones who are actually, you know, capable of speaking on it, there's a very, there's a very selectful hand few of people. And so when it comes to speaking about evolution, like one of the core things I learned from this discussion with you today is let's spend less time discussing the theory of evolution and more so our creed and figuring out how, you know, the, our, our creed reconciles with, and when people come to an, an Islam and evolution talk, they're not coming to hear the arguments against evolution. They're coming to hear what does Islam say on this subject? And obviously we, we have to understand, we have to, you know, right? to make a ruling on something, you must first conceptualize it. So we first have to conceptualize evolution but once we've conceptualized it, we just, we need to figure out how our creed can be reconciled with it. And mm -hmm. I think that's what today's discussion has done. And I think hopefully it will have removed some of the doubts that people will have and that hopefully it can be spread to other people so that whenever a question like this arises, rather than trying to recreate the wheel, we can just send out these videos and podcasts to people. And uh, with that, we can kind of, almost close the doors on this subject i mean like I, I just wanted to point out like if you if you have further questions or comments feel free to come back at me right like um i don't i'm not really good with facebook because now so many people clog up my inbox i can't i just cannot for the life of me address every single point but emails is something i can easily address because it just i i can see it and i can respond to it so okay. feel free to to reach out and you can find my email address on academia which is where I post all my publications when I'm mm. written up. I, I will, I'll put your email in the description of the video. Okay, that sounds cool. Yeah. yeah. So 
Um, with that, we will conclude. Um, we greatly appreciate your time and your insights. Um, it's a phenomenal book, mashallah. Um, and we think it'll be quite foundational towards the discourse on this subject. Um, so thank you so much. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.